This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, dear listener. Latino USA wants to know what questions you have about the COVID-19 vaccine and the vaccination process. We want to try and help you find answers. So call us at 646-571-1224. That's 646-571-1224. And leave us a voicemail or send a voice memo with your questions and a little bit about yourself to audience at latinousa.org. That's audience at latinousa.org. We'll be listening to all of your voice memos and your question might be featured on an upcoming episode. Gracias. Tus pajaritos, you still kept them though, your little birds. Ay, sorry. This is Maria Magaña. She's a Mexican woman who lives in Chicago. She was at home when I spoke to her a few weeks ago and I could hear her pet lovebirds chirping in the background. <laughs> No, I mean, how important have your little birds been for your time in the pandemic? Oh, sí. Sí, tengo dos perritos también. Y ellos nos han ayudado a salir de esta depresión, de este estrés. Porque es muy, muy difícil. Mi esposo tuvo esta enfermedad. María says her pajaritos, her little birds, and her two dogs have helped her and her family get through the stress and sadness of this year. Her husband, she tells me, was one of the millions of people in the United States who caught COVID-19. From Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, a year after COVID-19 first shut down the United States, we're going to look at how the pandemic has changed the lives of Latinos and Latinas across the country. Who and what we've lost but also what is sustaining us at the end of a year like no other. Hola, Tocaya. <laughs> ¿Cómo estás? Sí, buenas noches, María. Bien, bien, gracias. This is a recording of a phone call I had with María Magaña one year ago. It was March 17th, 2020. It was just a few days after then-President Donald Trump had declared the coronavirus a national emergency and cities across the country started shutting down schools and businesses. Maria, what did you do today? Well, just today I don't have to work because the family canceled. Maria is a domestic worker and when we spoke, many of her clients were canceling her gigs out of fear of catching COVID-19. I understand that they be scary about what's going on because I'm Maybe I catch it when I travel in, take the bus, train, or whatever, you know? Maria is 49 years old. She left Mexico City about 30 years ago. Latino USA producers first met her in 2019 when we were reporting on a clinic in Chicago that serves people who don't have health insurance. Maria is a patient at that clinic, and we met her when she was having her diabetes checked. One of the things that stood out to me about Maria was that she didn't seem that stressed about the pandemic one year ago, even though she was already losing work and didn't have health insurance and had an underlying health condition. Why are you so calm, Maria? Well, I can do nothing. Just wait. You know, stay peaceful, don't be worried. I worry, but you have to go out and have to work you can do nothing. Just trying to be unsafe, that's it. And we have a hope, like this situation don't take long time, weeks, months, I hope not. We all were hoping the same. 
But of course, the pandemic has taken even longer than that, and it's been incredibly hard on people like Maria. Over the last year, the virus ravaged Latino communities from New York City to South Texas and Southern California. It spread quickly throughout largely immigrant workplaces like meatpacking plants and produce farms. And it left a lot of other people like housekeepers and restaurant workers unemployed. Today, we're going to take you to the border to see firsthand how the battle against the coronavirus in the U.S. has impacted asylum seekers waiting in Mexico. We're going to go to the South Bronx in New York to hear about how one undocumented family turned their restaurant into a mutual aid soup kitchen. And later, we'll hear from a priest who's helping a community heal from so much loss and so much death. But first, let's check back in with Maria Magaña to see how the rest of the year went for her. We speak in both English and in Spanish, and I started by playing back some of last year's interview for her. And we have a hope like this situation don't take long time, weeks, months, I hope not. Oh my God. You know, I'm thinking about the fact, Maria Tocaya, that you said in that interview that you were like, oh my God, if it lasts more than a couple of weeks, you know, then what are we going to do? I was the same way. I was like, man, this can't go on forever. But here we are. Exactly. You know, it's a year. Yes. I'm behind on my rent until today because my husband not work. My daughter not work for two months. My husband not work for almost five months last year. And I work, but maybe two days a week, maybe. Maria's situation has been very common this year. A report out of Harvard found that as of last September, almost two-thirds of Latinos and Latinas had lost income because of the pandemic. One in five Latino renters were also behind on their payments, and Latina women have been unemployed at especially high rates. So you've been able to make it because you saved money, because you have two days a week of work. ¿Cómo le haces? How are you doing that? Because you're the only one that's working in the whole house? Yes, but I have a people, they pay me. I not be working, but they keep in paying me. So a lot of the people who you work for were doing that? Not really all the ones, but few ones. Wow. What do you think about that, Tokaya? She says it makes her believe in human kindness and that there are good people in the world who care about others. Maria says she feels blessed and that she hopes that they'll eventually call her to come and work for them again. There was some government support, right? Stimulus checks, unemployment benefits. Did well, nada, no? I can't receive nothing. Nothing. Because I'm mixed marriage. My husband is in process for getting papers. And for this reason, we are disqualified about that. So you, you have legal status in the United States. Yes. But because you're married to somebody who doesn't immediately have legal status, you cannot get any benefits at all? Yes, yes. Oh, Mr. Trump say that. Here's what happened. People in mixed immigration status families did not receive the first stimulus payment approved by Congress last year. Technically, they were eligible to receive the second checks that were distributed earlier this year. And Maria might still be able to get those $600, though it's not a sure thing. Maria and her husband weren't able to get unemployment because they both are self-employed. Her daughter could have gotten unemployment, but she decided not to apply because she's sponsoring her dad for a green card. And the family's lawyer worried that it could count against him if she got any help from the government. That's because of a Trump administration policy called the public charge rule, which makes it harder for immigrants to get legal status if the government thinks they might end up using public benefits. So what about Mr. Biden? I hope, we hope, we have a lot of hopes for he can fix it. And on March 9th, 
just a few weeks after my conversation with Maria, the Biden administration announced that the public charge rule would no longer be in effect. So what did you change in your life so that you could survive financially with just a teeny little bit amount of income? Well, we cut a lot, you know. We have to cut a cable. Uh, we're trying to use less light, you know, gas. is impossible because Chicago is cold right now and we have to use gas. But, you know, the things that you don't need to buy, we don't buy this. I'm just wondering, you know, what has been the hardest part of all of this for you? Uh, emocionalmente fue ver a mi esposo enfermo. Maria says the hardest moment of the past year was when her husband caught COVID in the fall. Eso fue lo que me devastó en, en su totalidad. She says it devastated her to see him so sick and to think that he might die. Y pues nos quedamos así como en shock, ¿no? Pues ¿cómo? ¿Por qué? ¿Dónde? ¿Dónde lo pudimos agarrar? ¿Dónde? She says they were shocked. They didn't know where they could have got the virus. She tested positive, too, even though she didn't have any symptoms. Then her husband started having heart palpitations. She took her husband to the hospital, and she started to panic. But the hospital did a chest x-ray on her husband, and they told him he was fine. So she took him home, and he was sick for a couple of more weeks, but by the third week, he was well again. Me sentí agradecida a Dios. Le dije, bueno, gracias a la Madre Tierra, al Universo, a todo lo que pude imaginarme. And Maria says she thanked God and Mother Earth and the Universe and anything else she could think of that her husband was going to be okay. You know, when we spoke to you a year ago, you sounded really calm. I remember I was like, oh my God, es tan mexicana. She was like, no, everything's going to be okay. Ahí vamos. Do you feel the same way? I feel like we survive this, we can survive whatever. We have to keep him positive and say, okay, we are Mexicans, we can do, <laughs> we survive a lot and we're going to survive this. The sad part is the people lost some member of the family, but the people stay here, we're going to keep it up. No hay de otra, ¿verdad? And I said, there's no other option, right? Exacto, exacto. <laughs> and Maria said, exactly. And then she brings up an impact of the pandemic that I hadn't thought of. Maria's husband's application for legal residency has been delayed. That's because U.S. immigration offices were shut down for a few months because of the pandemic. Pero no nos podemos ya, ahora sí, echar para atrás o dejar el caso porque ya estamos en el último paso. The delays have been really frustrating, but they don't want to abandon his case because it's been a long process and they're finally almost at the end. Hemos gastado dinero que no tenemos. Plus, she says, they've spent money they don't even have. ¿Qué podemos hacer? Solo esperar y seguir viviendo y sobrevivir, literalmente. Maria says, what can we do? Just wait and keep living and literally just survive. Y encontrar la felicidad de alguna manera and find happiness someplace? Creo que encontrar la felicidad está en uno mismo. She says, we've got to find happiness within ourselves. La felicidad son momentos. Estar con tu familia, platicar, eh, decirle te quiero. She realized this year that for her, happiness comes from small moments like spending time talking with her family and telling them she loves them. Uh, abrazarla si está con uno. And giving them a hug if they're around. Desear lo mejor. Eso es la felicidad. And then just wishing for the best. Coming up on Latino USA, 
we're going to take you to the border to see firsthand how the battle against the coronavirus in the U.S. has impacted asylum seekers waiting in Mexico. Stay with us. No te vayas. Hey, it's Maria Hinojosa. Shows like Latino USA are a proving ground and a launchpad for hosts like me. And you know, Latino USA literally changed my life. It's thanks to public radio stations that this podcast is here for you in its current form. Many of you may not be regular listeners to your local public radio station, but consider giving it a listen and you'll discover more shows like this one. And if you're so inclined, Help us, because many of these stations are in their spring pledge drive. Help them expand their reach and service by giving whatever works for you. And thanks. Support for Latino USA comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is an all-in-one management software with apps for every business need. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between. And they're all in one easy-to-use software. And the best part about Odoo? All Odoo apps are integrated, helping you get things done faster and more efficiently. So when you think about business, think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Latino. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Latino. We're back. A year ago, soon after the virus made its way out of China and into Europe, countries around the globe would not only shut down businesses and schools, but some would also close their borders to try to control the spread of the virus. The U.S. would first close its doors to travelers from China and then from Italy, France, and other European countries, all one time global epicenters of the pandemic. Eventually, however, the U.S. would also partially shut down its borders with Mexico, even though back then and now our neighbor to the south has had far fewer cases of COVID-19 than the U.S. A Centers for Disease Control and Prevention order would also give the Trump administration an excuse to essentially block certain people from entering the country, whether they were infected or not. Our producer, Reynaldo Leaños Jr., is going to pick up the story from here. It's a cloudy Saturday morning in February, and I'm standing in a plaza right by the McAllen Hidalgo International Bridge. There's a lot of cars and people making their way from one side of the border to the other. Everyone around me is wearing a face mask and going about their day. During the pandemic, people have continued to travel back and forth between Mexico and the U.S. But right now, the rule is that, quote, non-essential travel, end quote, is not allowed. The government basically describes non-essential travel as that that is recreational or tourism in nature and allows only travel for business and trade into the U.S. We're also working with Mexico to implement new rules at our ports of entry to suspend non-essential travel. Former President Trump made this announcement at a press conference last year on March 20th, and his policy is still in effect across the entire border. Just across the river from here is the Mexican city of Reynosa. That's where last spring I met a woman from Honduras that we'll call Paula. She asked us not to use her real name in order to not jeopardize her asylum prospects. Paula told me she and her family had crossed the Rio Grande to seek protection and ask for asylum in the U.S., but they weren't allowed to. Instead, they were returned to Mexico with no place to go. CDC order 
directs the department to suspend the introduction of all individuals seeking to enter the U.S. without proper travel documentation. That's Chad Wolf, former acting secretary for the Department of Homeland Security. He, too, spoke at the press conference where Trump made the announcement last March to talk about an order from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that was about to go into effect. The CDC director has determined that the introduction and spread of the coronavirus in the department's border patrol stations and detention facilities presents a serious danger to migrants, our frontline agents and officers, and the American people. Tonight, again at midnight, we will execute the CDC order by immediately returning individuals arriving without documentation. The CDC order that Wolf is talking about cites Title 42 of the U.S. Code that deals with public health. The government says this gives them the right to suspend the introduction of certain persons from countries where a quarantinable communicable disease exists. In this case, the quarantinable communicable disease meant COVID-19. That's the reason Paula and her family were sent back to Mexico without any due process. However, Paula's story is a little more complicated. Last year, I visited Paula in a small apartment where she, her husband, and two kids were living after they were expelled from the U.S. Eh, bueno, nosotros entramos... Eh, de forma ilegal, por el río nos tiramos, ahí entramos a McAllen. El primer, yo iba embarazada ya con nueve meses. Estando ahí en la hielera, encerrada, me pegaron los dolores. Paula says she, her husband, and then three-year-old son, crossed the river into McAllen at the end of March 2020. About a week or two after Trump declared COVID-19 a national emergency, the fourth member of the family traveled inside Baula. She was nine months pregnant. When they made it to the other side of the river, they were detained by border agents and taken to a nearby facility that Baula and other migrants have called La Yelera, or the icebox. There, Paula says she and her family received an aluminum-like blanket, but slept with the same clothes they wore when they crossed the river. Soon, she started to get contractions. Y me llevaron para el hospital, de ahí tuve a la niña. Me llevaron otra vez para la hielera, y ahí me tuvieron cinco días con la niña, y después nos tiraron para aquí, por el puente, aquí para México. Agents took her to a nearby hospital where she gave birth to a baby girl. About two days later, she was taken back to the border facility. Then, less than a week later, Paula and her family were taken to an international bridge and left in Reynosa, Mexico. Pues ellos nos dijeron de que era por la de la enfermedad del COVID que estaba no estaban dejando pasar a la a la gente y la estaban regresando. Y aunque la niña hubiese nacido allá, que que ese no era problema de ellos, nos dijeron. She tried to argue that her daughter's expulsion was illegal and asked U.S. border agents to at least let her and her baby stay. But the agents told her that the whole family had to be returned to Mexico because of the pandemic. It didn't matter that her newborn was a U.S. citizen. Eh, sí, yo les dije a ellos, ustedes están haciendo algo ilegal, le digo, porque la niña es nacida aquí. Sí, dice. Eh, ella es verdad, la niña es nacida aquí, dice, pero ahorita no estamos dejando a nadie. Y yo, yo, le, yo le dije que no estaba correcto lo que hacían, que tan siquiera me dejaran a mí y con la niña, porque no teníamos para dónde irnos. Aquí en México no teníamos apoyo de nadie, y más en esa enfermedad. Y, la, y apenas no me había terminado de aliviar bien, solo tenía seis días cuando ellos no les importó nada de eso. The CDC order implemented by the Trump administration says it applies to persons traveling from Mexico or Canada, such as migrants without proper documentation, regardless of country of origin, who would be introduced into a congregate setting like a border patrol facility. The order says it does not apply to U.S. citizens, which would include Paula's baby, or legal permanent residents. Paula says she wasn't given her daughter's birth certificate before the family was expelled to Mexico. Eh, no, no teníamos ni para dónde agarrar, fuimos para los albergues de centro de vida, no nos quieren recibir, no traíamos ropa ni comida para los niños, nos dábamos dinero y nos quedamos dos noches en un parque de ahí cerca del puente y, 
Y ahí, gracias a Dios, nos, se acercó una señora y nos, nos echó la mano en la comida y en la vestimenta de los bebés. Paula and her family tried going to a local migrant shelter, but they didn't let them stay because of the pandemic. She says they ended up sleeping in a park, scared for their safety. Reynosa, in the Mexican state of Tamaulipas, is classified as the highest security threat level by the U.S. State Department. It's also the state where recently 19 bodies, most of them Guatemalan migrants, were found shot and burned in a pickup truck. There's also hundreds of reports of migrants being kidnapped and extorted, including with help from the local police. Paula's case is not unique. Other pregnant women who gave birth in the U.S. have been returned to Mexico with their newborns under the excuse of the CDC's order. And while the Biden administration has requested a review of this policy, migrants continue to be expelled. Eventually, Paula and her family were able to get in touch with the local nun in Mexico, who helped them get an apartment to stay at, which is where I first met them. Flash forward almost a year later, and Paula is still in Reynosa. She's virtually showing me around the new place where her family and her are living. She shows me their living room where her son is playing and the room where her daughter is sleeping in. I haven't seen her and the family in months because of COVID-19 and they're now further away from the border. I've kept in touch with her on and off through WhatsApp. Pues mi pareja ya él está trabajando en una fábrica de cuatro días de miércoles a sábado. Eh, está trabajando él. She says her partner is working four days a week while she stays at home and watches over their kids. Since last March, there have been more than 440,000 expulsions at the southern border, including children who have been sent back to their home countries or Mexico. All expulsions need to end because, um, you know, every single expulsion that happens is denying a human being um, their legal right to um, to access an immigration system that that our law has has created. And so this is something that they can end if they um, if they choose to. That's Carla Vargas. She's a senior staff attorney with the Texas Civil Rights Project. TCRP was part of a lawsuit filed last year against the federal government to try and stop the expulsion of unaccompanied children. Carla says the fastest way to end these express turnarounds is for the Biden administration to issue an executive order. The White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, was asked about migrants being turned away at the border at a press conference in early February. Due to the pandemic uh, and the fact that we have not had the time as an administration to put in place a humane, uh, comprehensive process for processing uh, individuals who are coming to the border, now is not the time to come. And the vast majority of people uh, will be turned away. Asylum processes at the border will not occur immediately, will take time to implement. Last March, several human rights and immigrant rights organizations like Amnesty International and Human Rights First wrote a letter to Congress with recommendations on how to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic while also protecting asylum seekers. Physicians for Human Rights said these removals and the CDC order were not based on science and public health. It really kind of categorically targets one particular group who is not any more at likelihood to essentially spread COVID-19 and other groups that we are continuing to allow into the United States. That's Dr. Catherine Peeler. She's with Physicians for Human Rights, who told the CDC that asylum seekers are no more likely to spread COVID-19 than students, temporary workers, and truck drivers who cross the border and are currently exempt from these types of restrictions. We reached out to the Department of Homeland Security and U.S. Customs and Border Protection. CBP said in a statement that any individual in their custody who is experiencing a medical emergency or medical situation will be transported to an appropriate medical facility for evaluation. We specifically asked these agencies if they could provide a statement or more information about the expulsion of women and their newborn U.S. citizen children. And if the Biden administration would suspend Title 42, very much like it did with the migrant protection protocols in January. But they didn't respond to those questions. While the administration figures out how they'll proceed with this policy, Paula says she and her family will remain in Reynosa. Sí, gracias a Dios, los dos niños han estado muy bien. 
de salud, de todo, muy bien, gracias a Dios. She thanks God that her kids are healthy and doing well. Paula and her family remain hopeful, despite being stuck in Mexico for the last year. She says she was recently able to obtain her daughter's birth certificate through the help of some lawyers. Paula says it's her kids that keep her and her husband going, and the idea that one day they'll be able to come into the U.S. for a better life. Now let's go to New York City, and more specifically, La Morada, which is a restaurant in the South Bronx run by the Saavedra family. They're indigenous, undocumented, and originally from Oaxaca, Mexico. La Morada was always more than a restaurant. Over the last decade, it's also been a safe haven for the local undocumented and immigrant community. But when the pandemic hit New York City a year ago, forcing all restaurants to close temporarily, the Saavedra family took it as an opportunity to reimagine the role that they and their business could play in their community. Producer Julia Rocha brings us their story. It's around 9 a.m. on a recent Tuesday, and Marco Saavedra is opening La Morada. It means purple in Spanish, but like La Morada also has that meaning of being in a boat or like a shelter, a welcoming space. And so being undocumented immigrants and feeling so hostile in our homes for so long, we want it to be as welcoming a place as possible. In addition to serving their famous mole, tlacoyos, and other indigenous traditional dishes from Mexico, the restaurant also functions as a kind of community center in the South Bronx neighborhood of Mott Haven, a historically African-American and Puerto Rican neighborhood with fast-growing Mexican, African, and Garifuna immigrant communities. We had book sharing, we had poetry readings, documentary showings, and music nights, fundraisers. Like, all of that has kind of been on pause because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The South Bronx has been one of the hardest-hit areas in the country by the pandemic. Many of its residents are either essential workers or are unable to work from home. People living in parts of Queens and the Bronx have found themselves in the epicenter of the virus. And many living in these communities say more needs to be done to prevent it from spreading. Just seeing like the food lines that go around for blocks, the incessant sirens, knowing that there's not enough relief for this community that is working class, that depends so much on the service industry that is so hard hit. And you don't benefit from unemployment if you're undocumented, if you're working under the tables. Today, all of the tables, where customers used to sit and where people would come to gather at community events, are now turned to the wall. Like other restaurants across the city, La Morada had to close its doors due to the pandemic. But even once restrictions were lifted, it was clear that going back to normal was not an option. Marco and his family wanted to find a way to keep La Morada running and feed their neighborhood leading them to turn their restaurant into a mutual aid soup kitchen. But the story of Marco's family and their struggle for their community's right to food begins long before the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, I think my family's story is, there's no way to tell it without relating it in some way to food. Marco's parents are from the Mixteca Baja region in the northwest corner of Oaxaca. Their families, like generations before them, practiced subsistence farming, growing their own corn, beans, squash. But with the rise of subsidized exports caused by the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, the local agricultural economy in Mexico was devastated. Marco's parents, like thousands of other indigenous people, were forced to migrate to Mexico City to find work. My whole parents' generation just like up and left because the poverty and the hunger was like way too much. You know, they were children too when they basically had to become breadwinners for their families. Marco and his sister were born in Oaxaca, but soon their parents started to look for work somewhere else. 
Marco's parents went on to become migrant farm workers, first in northern Mexico and later across the border in California. They eventually decided to move to New York to be as far away from the border as possible. Undocumented, Marco's parents initially couldn't see themselves building a life in the U.S. They wanted to work, save up, and raise their children in Mexico City. But after just one year in New York, Marco says his parents felt they would have better opportunities if they stayed, even though they were still working long hours for little pay. For the longest time, my dad worked at a gas station. My mom was a custodian. But then like on the weekends, we would sell tacos in the park. My parents were always cooking for like the church. Family get togethers, like it was all about food. When the Great Recession struck in December of 2007, the service industry took a hard hit and Marco's parents' work felt more precarious than ever. About a year into the crisis, they decided to take matters into their own hands and start their own business. It was kind of like the worst time to open a small business and they poured in their life savings into it. And so really it was like such a huge gamble, I think a bigger gamble than we even realized. While his parents were taking a leap of faith opening the restaurant, Marco was also going through a transformational moment of his own. He had earned a full ride at Kenyon College in Ohio and he was beginning to examine his status as an undocumented person in new ways. Growing up with the constant fear of deportation that, like, I would never tell people that I was undocumented. It all changed in 2010. Undocumented and unafraid. Undocumented He took a semester at Georgetown University in D.C., right as Dream Act organizing was gaining momentum. Hundreds of undocumented youth, just like Marco, were becoming more and more outspoken about their undocumented status, protesting the limitations and violence that it imposed on their lives. I mean, the best part was just like meeting all these dreamers like myself and connecting with them. And it was just like the best way to like break out of my personal depression that was so paralyzing. At first, Marco's parents weren't exactly happy about their children's activism. They were so fearful when me and my sister started to organize and say that we're undocumented publicly and doing civil disobedience. They were constantly like telling us to like stop. Marco understood where his parents were coming from. He says they were treated as second-class citizens on both sides of the border, in Mexico for being indigenous and in the U.S. for being undocumented. But slowly, I think they were so inundated with calls and people supporting media showing up at the restaurant that they couldn't hide it anymore. And I feel like the more they saw us engaged in this work, that we really couldn't be dissuaded from it, but also that they needed to step up. Their family became more and more visible as Marco and his sister stepped up their activism. In addition to traveling the country on various immigration organizing campaigns, Marco and a group of dreamers decided to get purposefully detained by Border Patrol in order to infiltrate a for-profit detention center in 2012. They met with detainees on the inside to inform them of their rights and worked with activists on the outside to help get them out. Hello, my name is Marco Saavedra, and if you're watching this, it's because I was recently arrested in an act of civil disobedience. After years of organizing, Marco was burnt out. And in 2014, he decided to go back home to the South Bronx. Marco and his family worked together, not only to keep the restaurant running, but to make it a safe space for the undocumented community and to address the lack of access to nourishing food in their area. At an event in 2018, Marco's sister Carolina gets choked up as she talks about the importance of food justice in the South Bronx. We're very special because we're one of the few restaurants here that you could actually afford to eat farmer's market vegetables. And it's because due to gentrification, all of the prices around us are getting too ridiculous that the kids around here can't afford to eat a healthy meal. Many areas throughout the Bronx are known as food deserts, meaning there's very little access to fresh produce, leading to higher rates of obesity and other health issues. It was a pre-existing crisis that was put into stark relief when COVID-19 struck. I mean, I think obviously we're very fearful of what was happening and what it would mean for us. Obviously, because this was like, this is our livelihood and where we are, like, you know, the South Bronx feeds the city. The Bronx is home to Hunts Point Market, the largest wholesale produce market in the U.S., which provides about 60% of the food at restaurants and grocery stores across New York City. 
But not only do Bronx residents not have access to much of this food, they also bear the brunt of the huge environmental costs. The massive truck traffic from Hunts Point is one of the main reasons the South Bronx has some of the highest rates of air pollution in the country, with an asthma rate eight times the national average, another pre-existing crisis that the pandemic made even worse. As the virus spread quickly across the South Bronx, in April, the whole Saavedra family got sick too. I feel like I got hit with it the hardest because like, I was like, in bed for like about a week and with chills and fevers. While the restaurant remained closed under New York City's mandatory shutdown and the family recovered from COVID-19, the Saavedras wondered how they would keep their business alive. Because of their undocumented status, they were unable to get a stimulus check, file for unemployment, or apply for a small business loan through the Federal Payment Protection Program. Whenever you hear stuff like that as an undocumented immigrant, you're like, what am I immediately disqualified from? What line am I going to now be at the very end of? The first month into the pandemic was tough. Marco remembers throwing out spoiling meat and dairy while he watched the lines at local food pantries get longer and longer. Black and Latino small businesses bared the brunt of the government's insufficient response, with one study showing that 18% of Black and Latinx-owned businesses plan to close permanently by April of 2021. But after years of building connections in their neighborhood, their friends began to strategize to find a way to keep the restaurant running. A family friend started a crowdfunding campaign. We were at home in quarantine, sick or coming out of getting sick. I feel like as an immigrant, you're like indoctrinated. So like, if you're not working 60 hours a week, you don't deserve any money. Marco says that in the first two weeks, the crowdfunding campaign raised $45,000, enough to keep the restaurant open for the next three months. Just to see that money coming through, like every time we hit refresh, it's just so humbling and overwhelming. And we were just like so overjoyed. But even though the family was overjoyed, the South Bronx was grieving massive loss, becoming the second epicenter of the virus in New York after Corona, Queens, another large immigrant community. We knew we had to like be a part of the response to this epidemic. We definitely didn't know what we were doing or how we were going to do it. The family took another leap of faith. And when La Morada reopened in April of 2020, they began to operate as a soup kitchen for the community. That first day that we reopened, my mom made this huge, huge pot of chicken soup. It went out within like the first 90 minutes. I think we served almost like 200 servings of it. On a recent day, the team at La Morada was making pumpkin soup for 100 families that they were distributing at the local elementary school. Marco's mom is standing on a stool as she stirs the pumpkin because the giant pot of soup is almost bigger than her. She explains that they're not only giving out prepared soup, but also distributing ingredients to make the soup. She hopes their efforts can go beyond just one bowl of soup and that people can learn to make their own meals as well. Marco says that at first, they were just trying to make the most out of the resources they had. The crowdfunding campaign had given them a little extra cushion. And through the ties they forged over the years, friends started to connect them with other organizations doing similar work. A farmer cooperative in High Falls, New York, just started to donate every other week. A truckload of food would just come down of like the freshest, most organic ingredients. Soon, the Saavedra family realized they needed to make their efforts more accessible. With many people in the Bronx lacking childcare or transportation to get around safely, they decided to expand their operation and make deliveries to local shelters and organizations that would help them to distribute the food. So we would get people that would volunteer and we would have sometimes as many as 20, 25 driving routes with every person doing maybe like one or two runs, as many rounds as they could. To Marco and his family, it was important that this mutual aid work be understood for what it was. 
For us, like mutual aid has the same operating tenets as organizing. Whenever you see like inefficiencies or the inability of the federal government or the local government to provide for its own residents and citizens, mutual aid is like the practice of the community response to that inactivity, right? And irresponsibility and provide a means where, where there is no means and create that collaborative network of support. It was also important that people understand what it was not. Definitely is not charity because people in that meal line are like my neighbors, my friends, my aunts and cousins, people that I've been living with for the past decade and have benefited from by being in community with them. It's definitely a much more of an empathizing practice, right? It has more of those organizing tenets of liberation being mutual. Marco gives the example of their partnership with the South Bronx Tenants Association, a grassroots network fighting evictions. Since the Tenants Association had connections with people in dozens of buildings, they helped La Morada distribute the food. The beautiful thing about that is that while they were distributing, they would hand out leaflets or check in with folks that had like outstanding work orders. And so we were doing mutual aid, but at the same time, they were also like organizing and building their movement. So it was definitely a circular approach. To Marco, it really feels like he's come full circle. Lack of food sovereignty created the conditions for his parents to have to migrate from Oaxaca in the first place. And now here they were, one generation later, amidst a global pandemic, together, fighting for their community's basic right to food. If you don't have access to like healthy, nutritious food and some control over where your food is coming from, then it's inevitable that panic will ensue and people will start hoarding food and not sharing with others and not looking out for their neighbors. And being in relation and community with the land inevitably means that you're in community with your neighbor. And yeah, these mutual aid values line up with organizing, line up with sovereignty and indigenous fights that are as old as time. Just as Marco's parents learned from their children's activism, Marco and his sisters also learned from their parents about what mutual aid means and looks like. If they didn't have this culture of mutual aid, then like I think we could have easily just been like another boarded up restaurant. But today, La Morada's doors remain open. And last month, Marco was granted political asylum. He delivered the news to his community, standing against the purple walls of La Morada, side by side with his family, as his friends threw confetti at him from six feet away. The Saavedra family hopes to one day have their own space to live and work in the South Bronx, a space where they can continue to make their delicious mole, uplift local artists and activists, and feed their community. Coming up on Latino USA, the story of Father Roy, the cowboy priest on the U.S.-Mexico border who's helping a community heal. Stay with us. No te vayas. Across the country, many families continue to deal with the loss of their loved ones. More than 500,000 people in the U.S. have died due to the virus, and several states took turns as national COVID hotspots, including Texas, but more specifically the Rio Grande Valley. The region in Texas's south became an epicenter for the virus where thousands have died. Most of the deaths have been Latinos and Latinas, and it was there on the border in a tiny white church where I met Father Roy over a year ago. He's been living on the border for many years now. He's known as the cowboy priest. And Reynaldo Leaños Jr. joins us now with the story of how Father Roy has helped families heal through the loss of their loved ones. It's around 6.30 on a Friday morning. The sun has not yet come up and it's windy and cold. 
I am making my way up a path towards a small chapel on the top of a hill in the city of Mission. When I enter the chapel, it's pretty dark inside. There's no electricity or heat, and the only light is coming from candles at the very front of the church. I quietly take a seat in a corner and wait for the 7 a.m. mass to begin. I'm not the only one early. There's already more than a dozen people inside, and everyone has a mask on, and social distance themselves from one another as best they can. About 20 minutes later, Father Roy Snipes arrives. Father Roy's three dogs, Bendito, Charlotte, and Wiglet, are with him. And they run around inside the church smelling people. One of them jumps on someone's lap as the priest starts to get things ready for Mass. Father Roy then goes to the back of the church to ring a bell, signaling that Mass is about to start. On the way back to the front of the church, he sprinkles holy water on people. This holy water from the Rio Grande and the holy water that's falling from the skies remind us of our baptism in Christ, whose spirit of love is at work in our hearts and stories and families, and in the story of our old family of faith here on the Rio Grande. He then plays a song called Blue Shadows on an old battery-powered CD player. Father Roy grew up in San Antonio, but he has been in the Rio Grande Valley for decades. He's pretty well known in town for fighting the border wall to protect the La Lomita Chapel, which was originally built back in 1865. Most recently, Father Roy has been a constant presence at funeral services in the valley from people who have died of COVID-19. The RGV had a surge of cases last summer. I think it really ought to be bigger national news right now, that the situation in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas right now is well and truly dire. There is now a two-week waiting list to get a body into a crematorium in Hidalgo County. Doctors have have talked about just the the sheer volume of patients they've been seeing. And I'm actually just outside a field hospital that's been set up here in McAllen, Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley. And it has tents inside. Uh, This is an overflow facility. Um, The Rio Grande Valley was hit hard by the pandemic and has killed about 4,000 people. That means that one in about 340 people in the region has passed away. In comparison, one in about 600 have died nationwide. At today's Mass, Father Roy brings up COVID-19. And we pray for all those who are sick with the virus, and uh, especially those who are sick and scared to death, which probably, pretty much all of us, even if we're not sick, we're scared to death with the virus. Then he says he's about to paraphrase a prayer Pope Francis gave a while back. Almighty and ever-living Ever-loving God, we pray for those who are ill. Send your hearty healing spirit to them. Comfort those who are are mourning. There's more mourning than we realize. People are mourning who have lost loved ones. People are mourning just for the good times that are gone. And people are mourning who are looking with fear at the danger or the threat of the virus. While people have their heads down in prayer, he asks them to also please pray for those who are sick with COVID in the ICUs, as well as doctors and nurses and those who are administering the vaccine. Help us to encourage each other in these trying times. After Mass, I sit down for a talk with Father Roy in his office, several minutes away from La Lomita, but still in mission. He says he doesn't remember the first COVID-19 funeral he did here in the Valley, but he's sure that he's done more than 100. He's actually getting ready for another, and this one hit close to home. One of our great youth leaders and uh, lectors and ministers of communion, always active in the parish, uh, he and his wife had uh, had the ministry of uh, helping people with a wake, saying the rosary with them, and he he came down with a COVID maybe uh, 
three weeks ago, four weeks ago. He's 63 years old. We'd had other people that around that age that they came down with the COVID and they bounced back well. And within a week or two, they were really already recuperating well. And he he died. And we're, we're all so shocked by that. That's extremely personal because he was here helping us all the time. He was here and now he's gone. Pre-COVID, Father Roy used to do funerals, but he says doing them during the pandemic has been especially difficult. Uh, one thing about the COVID that is very painful for me, there's a protocol that we've come up with, the bishop came up with it, and it, and it certainly makes sense that way back when it first started happening, that we would do graveside services but not bring the families and the body into the church because it, that would be more of a likelihood of contagion. But that's very painful. We What we did start doing that uh, helped some, we wouldn't just do a graveside. We'd ask them to bring the body to the church. We wouldn't come in, but we'd with the body out in front, we'd ring the funeral bell, and we have those outside bocinas that you, so we'd uh, play some good songs for, you know, songs that would kind of soothe the broken heart. There's no song that fixes a broken heart. Doing so many funerals during the pandemic has sometimes been draining, but he always tries to remain present for the families beyond the funerals because their pain doesn't go away when they say goodbye to their loved ones. I don't want to become perfunctory. That is, I don't want to become just where I'm just performing this ritual that has to be performed and I have to do it and get it over with because I, I try to remember every time this could be This could be my daddy, this could be my mama that we're burying. And I know how much that crushed me when my mama died, and that's how they're crushed now. This became especially challenging during the spike in cases over the summer. Sometimes by the end of the day, he wouldn't remember which funerals he had just done, and sometimes it was four or five a day. It was like a nightmare. It was unbelievable. And I just tried to be brave on the one hand, not to, you know, not to be, not to be uh, griping because that's what I signed up for. My job is to bury that. That's one of one of the main things that a parish priest does is to bury the dead, you know, and and console the grieving. That uh, so I just tried to, you know, be brave and brave and cariñoso, you know, courageous but cariñoso, and. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was terrible. I didn't, we, we haven't had anything like that again. I hope we won't. One of the burial services that Father Roy spoke at during the height of the pandemic was for Manuel Science Jr.'s dad. He goes by Manny. Manny grew up in a small town in the Rio Grande Valley of San Isidro. He teaches art at a local high school and at the local college. Manny says he remembers Father Roy coming over to his house when he was young, before he joined the priesthood. His dad and Father Roy were pretty close, and it was special to have him at the burial service. Having him there, not only just as a, a, a priest that we know, but he's family to us. He, he was rays of sunshine on a cloudy day, on a very dark day for us. And the words that he shared uh, throughout, you know, the, the, the service and, uh, you know, the burial were all about how how my father lived a, a genuine, good life. That was important just to hear it come out of Father Roy's mouth. Manny's dad was a math teacher and a coach in San Isidro. His dad and mom lived out there for decades, even into their older age. After Manny's mother passed away unexpectedly after an accident in 2019, around that time is when his dad moved in with him for a while. But eventually, they moved his dad to an assisted living facility. He discovered that he loved, of all things, painting. He became an artist. My dad was like like the athletic guy. You know what I mean? Like the athletic coach guy. He was not the fine arts. Nothing like that. Then, when COVID-19 hit last March, the facility only allowed window visits. The missed interactions took a toll on his dad. He fell down one night. That morning, he ended up in the hospital, and it turned out that he had a dislocated uh, hip, and so he was going to need surgery. Manny says he was concerned about his dad having to leave the facility and going to the hospital because COVID cases were really ramping up in the area. 
The surgery went well, and he was transported to a rehabilitation center. But then they discovered that the ball and socket had come undone. So he needed surgery. Again. This would happen once more after that. So he went back to the hospital a third time. And that's when we found out later that evening that he tested positive for COVID. Manny says that he had a bad feeling on how this was going to turn out. His dad's surgery was put on hold because he was COVID positive. Communicating with his dad in the hospital was almost impossible. The hospitals needed beds. They needed room for other patients. And we were lucky enough that we did find a nursing and rehab in FAR that would accept him. Then he got a phone call. That morning, my sister, she says, hey, um, and she was breaking up and she was really choking up. She goes, dad's gone. He, he went into cardiac arrest midway between DHR and the, the nursing and rehab. Manny and his family were devastated. They had to wait almost two weeks to bury him because funeral homes couldn't keep up with the high volume of deaths. His funeral service was also limited because of the pandemic, but people were able to tune in virtually. Manny says he's very thankful that Father Roy spoke at the burial service. Father Roy just was like so comforting in, in, in having us know that Though the last month, the last year and a half when my mom went through her ordeal, but even though they went through all that hell, that they're in heaven now and they're together. And that is everything too for us. You know, they are together and there's no COVID in heaven. It's not there and they're happy and they're in paradise now. Manny says when he gets sad about the loss of his parents, he allows himself to cry and let it out. He says he also thinks back to the happy moments he had with his parents. Back at Father Roy's office, he says he's thankful that people trust him. He thinks one reason he's able to connect and console people is because he speaks from his broken heart to their broken heart. You know, Pope Francis gave that beautiful example. He said, you really need to think of the church not as an elite country club for the, for the special people who can get in, for the superior people who can get in. You need to think of it as kind of like a field hospital, and we're all wounded, and we're helping each other get, you know, helping each other make it. Father Roy says even though the last year has been difficult, he's hopeful about the future. Love being stronger than death is something we experience. And love, that's something else. It's not, it's not just that love conquers death. It does. You can experience it in that way. You say that I... I lost the one I love, but I love him more than ever. But actually, the, it, love is actually even kind of like fertilized. You see, I, it's, I, I find myself growing in love because my heart is so broken and growing in love for the one who's been taken from me and just growing in love for life, more, more aware of the gift of life. Over the past year, I've lost so many people that I can't even count, including mi primo, my cousin Gerardo, in Mexico. And so to you, dear listener, if you've lost a loved one over the past year, I send you and all of us at Latino USA send you our deepest condolences, nuestro más sentido pésame, to you and your families. From all of us at Latino USA, this episode is for you. Amor. 
This episode was produced by Alisa Escarce, Reinaldo Leaños Jr., and Julia Rocha, and edited by Andrea Lopez Cruzado. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Marta Martinez, Julieta Martinelli, Ginny Montalvo, Alejandra Salazar, and we had help from Raul Perez. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau, Julia Caruso, and Leah Shaw, with help from Alicia Beitup, Gabriela Baez, and Rosana Caban. Our digital editor is Luis Luna. Our interns are Samantha Friedman and Carly Rubin. This week, we say goodbye to our fabulous producer, Alisa Escarce. Alisa, thank you so much for all of your hard work. One year of it during a pandemic, and we wish you the best of luck on your next big adventure. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meanwhile, look for us on social media. I'll see you there. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide, and funding for Latino USA's coverage of a culture of health is made possible in part by a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Nosage, two, one. There was your fun right there, Miguel. Nosage.